0: So, Isabel, we have been hearing for weeks that Russia was preparing to invade Ukraine. At this point, has Russia now invaded Ukraine?
1: Yeah, I guess it depends uh, who you ask.
0: Isabel Khrushudian is the Moscow correspondent for The Post reporting from eastern Ukraine. On Monday, Russian President Vladimir Putin declared that he is recognizing two separatist regions of Ukraine as independent And he ordered in troops to, quote-unquote, perform peacekeeping functions. But there's very little reason to think that those troops are there just to keep the peace. In footage from one of these regions in Ukraine, you can see Russian tanks rolling through the streets. For the U.S. and other allies of Ukraine, this escalation by Putin is considered the beginning of an invasion. None of us, none of us should be fooled. None of us will be fooled. There is no justification. Further Russian assault in Ukraine remains a severe threat in the days ahead. And if Russia proceeds, it is Russia and Russia alone that bears the responsibility. President Biden spoke on Tuesday afternoon. He promised to police sanctions on Russian financial institutions, its debt, and Russian elites and their families. Biden said that these new sanctions go way beyond what was put in place in 2014, when Russia invaded Crimea. As Russia contemplates its next move, we have our next move prepared as well. Russia will pay an even steeper price if it continues its aggression, including additional sanctions. But it's still unclear just how far Ukraine's allies will go to defend Ukraine.
1: The West is now figuring out how to respond to this. The U.S., the EU, NATO. If this is it for what Russia plans to do with Ukraine, is it something people can live with because those territories weren't really in the mix of Ukraine proper? Or is this an invasion that triggers the swift and severe sanctions that we've heard so much about?
0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, February 22nd. Today, we hear how Vladimir Putin is justifying the troops he sent into Ukraine, and what world leaders are willing to do to stop this from turning into a full-blown war. — Though there were many warning signs that Russia was getting ready for an invasion, what really set things off was Putin's speech on Monday. It was a national address nearly an hour long, and it was all about Ukraine. Putin gave his own take on Ukraine's history. He denied the validity of Ukrainian statehood. He asserted without evidence that Ukraine was torturing people. And he accused the country of genocide against separatist regions.
1: Everybody who listened to that speech was like, wait a minute, that had very little to do with just the separatist areas and had a lot to do with Ukraine as a whole. And there were some threatening lines in there, one of which stood out to me. It was like, oh, you want decommunization? I'll show you what decommunization looks like. I think to a lot of people who listened, their takeaway was he just declared war.
0: Within hours of that speech, there were reports of Russian military columns already appearing in these breakaway territories. But it's unclear just how many troops Putin has sent in so far.
1: I think it's hard to say. We don't really have a good sense of exactly how many troops are going to be there, what unit they're from. The problem is, is that Russia tightly controls the information. And on top of that, in those separatist regions, there's really no independent information that gets out of there. They don't allow independent media or foreign journalists into there. There's been somewhat of an evacuation in recent days where women, children, elderly have been bussed out of there. But we don't have a great sense of how many people have been bussed out into Russia. So there's still some confusion as to what's going on. We do know that there have been some troops that are on the territory right now, Russian troops. And we do know that there is Russian artillery and hardware that is moving onto the territory.
0: Hmm. So. President Putin is basically making the argument that these are regions that want to be independent or that don't see themselves as part of Ukraine. But what does the Ukrainian president think about this? And how are Ukrainian officials responding to this military action?
1: Yeah, they're saying this is an invasion, that this is, you know, an attack on Ukraine's territorial integrity.
0: We believe that by taking the decision the Russian Federation creates a legal basis for further military aggression against Ukraine, violating all bilateral and multilateral international obligations.
1: The context of this is that Russia has been backing these separatist regions this entire time and has been arming them. And these territories have been de facto kind of Russia controlled, even if, you know, Russia kind of denied their presence there.
0: Have we seen the Ukrainian military respond at all, or does it appear that Ukrainian officials are ready to take action to defend what they see as these two parts of their country?
1: They have said they are not going to launch an offensive into those areas, and they are on orders not to open fire. I think there are situations where if they are under attack, they respond. But this is something Russia has been kind of propagating that, oh, Ukraine's about to launch an offensive to take back these territories. Ukrainian officials have repeatedly said, we do not want to take military action to get those territories back. We want like a peaceful resolution.
0: So we have...  — Ukrainian President Zelensky saying he views this as an act of military aggression. We have Ukraine's ambassador to the U.N. saying that this is a violation of their nation's sovereignty. — Ukraine, unequivocally, qualifies the recent actions by the Russian Federation as violation of sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine. — How are we seeing world leaders responding so far? And what are they willing to do to defend Ukraine in this situation? —
1: We've been hearing so much about a full-scale invasion, right, where Kiev is potentially targeted, where Kharkiv is targeted, where Odessa is targeted, where it's coming from the north, the south, the east, to a degree where, you know, Russia just moving its forces into two territories that you have been kind of lost to Ukraine. There's a temptation for world leaders and for outside observers to just be like, oh, well, that's not that big of a deal. And I think... World leaders are trying not to fall into that temptation while also maybe wondering, okay, if this is the extent of it, does it trigger
0: the same kind of sanctions response? And what are the sanctions that are on the table right now? We
1: saw the United Kingdom introduce uh, sanctions against state banks and several oligarchs, people in Putin's inner circle. On Tuesday, the German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, in what has been probably the strongest response so far, basically put a pause on the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which is an incredibly economically important project to Russia. I think there's been a lot of kind of, you know, things floated. And that's where you've seen some frustration from the Ukrainian officials, too, that they want the sanctions package out there because they think that's a Mm. bigger preemptive move than just saying— you know, oh, the sanctions are going to be really bad.
0: That they feel like world leaders are not being clear enough in what the punishment will be for these military actions from Russia, especially if that escalates.
1: Right. I mean, Zelensky's point at the Munich Security Conference over the weekend was that you're telling me Russia will 100% invade my country, but you still haven't told anyone what the punishment for that is going to be.
0: I think in this question of world leaders trying to figure out how much they're willing to put on the line to defend Ukraine in this situation and, frankly, how much they care about these two regions in eastern Ukraine, I feel like it's helpful to understand what people who live in those regions feel and think. I mean, what has been their reaction to seeing these Russian military vehicles rolling through their streets, and do they see themselves as independent? Do they see themselves as part of Ukraine or part of Russia?
1: Independent media has had very, very few opportunities to really report in those areas. I do know that for them, being part of Russia is better than whatever kind of unclear status they had to this point because the way life was in those republics, there was no international banking, there was curfews, there is a lot of propaganda about, you know, Ukraine oppressing them and Russia helping them. So I think, you know, there is some of the population falls victim to that. There are people there who don't resent Ukraine, who, you know, have children who live in Ukraine and just didn't want to move when the ground underneath their feet became uh, separatist territory. Mm -hmm. You find that sentiment a lot, even with people who— live near kind of the conflict, you ask them, okay, if this escalates, if there's new military action, if, you know, your homes are getting shelled, will you leave? Will you evacuate? And they say no. So I think there's a lot of people who live in those separatist areas who are just like, well, I'm not going to leave. So it is where it is, whoever uh, is technically my government.
0: So what is your sense of how much Putin might be dissuaded from escalating this further because of sanctions. Like, when it comes to this pipeline that Germany is talking about, when it comes to the kinds of uh, sanctions that the U.S. is considering, are those—how dissuasive are those for Putin? How much does he care?
1: I don't think he cares at all. I don't think they're dissuasive at all. The message from Putin the past few days is they were going to sanction us anyway. Russia has— dealt with sanctions before, they have seen their economy recover, and they've done a pretty good job of sanction-proofing their economy. Hmm.
0: So then what does that tell us about what is going to happen next?
1: I think now the picture is becoming clear of what the possible next steps are. You have Russian forces in there now in the occupied areas. Mm -hmm. And that raises, obviously, the stakes of direct conflict between Ukrainian troops on their side of the line and Russian, quote unquote, peacekeeping forces. That then creates a possibility where Russia will claim that Ukrainian troops fired on their Russian soldiers. And this is a reason to trigger war. I think another option is putting those forces into the separatist republics was just another way for Putin to turn up The heat just a little bit more on the Western countries who want to mediate this. Hmm. The main ones being, you know, the U.S., Germany, and France. And maybe then they try to kind of talk Kiev into making some concessions to perhaps end it here. Russia, the full territorial boundaries of these separatist republics, as is proclaimed in their constitution— They say then that Ukraine's government forces are illegally occupying all of that territory up to the front line that currently exists. And that is what, you know, leads to the kind of military conflict. So I think there's a lot of different ways that this could go. But at least if there were about 50 options on the table before Monday, it seems it's narrowed down a little bit to like five
0: Isabel, what is your sense of how Russians feel about what's going on or or what they understand about what's going on and what they're being told?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting because as the entire world, really, especially the West, was kind of screaming, you know, that an invasion was going to happen— that Russia was preparing to attack, talking about all of these, you know, forces massed at the Ukrainian border. Russian state media was not really saying much about it. And then the narrative became, oh, this is Western hysteria. And then it all kind of very quickly switched to Ukraine is planning to attack the separatist republic. And that's what we've been seeing in
0: state media. And what about Ukrainians? Are they preparing to defend themselves?
1: So Ukraine has this sort of amateur reserve force called the territorial defense. And it's basically civilians, office workers, sometimes even grandmas, who, you know, want to pick up a gun and defend their country in case of a Russian attack, a Russian invasion. — so they do these trainings on the weekend where they learn about how to handle firearms. I've heard there's been a big spike in firearm purchases around the country. I actually met with someone, you know, in Kharkiv, and he was telling me that you know he has a friend who sells bulletproof vests, and um, he can't even fill demand right now. So a lot of civilians. I think there would be an insurgency based on the civilians we've seen kind of interested in that sort of thing.
0: Isabel, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: That was foreign correspondent Isabel Krishudian. After the break, we go to our colleague who has been reporting from the Eastern Front. We'll be right back.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: The normalcy is what surprised me the most, I think.
0: Michael Robinson-Chavez is a photojournalist for The Post. He just returned over the weekend from the front lines of where Ukraine meets the Russian separatist
2: regions. The, yes, we have Russia next to us and it's the big beast that's constantly threatening us, and was kind of the lack of, of being on a really intense war footing which I've been in other countries that have, you know, in Iraq and Lebanon and Congo where you know, things were, were really happening and governments were falling and these kinds of things. And, and you could really, you know, the tension was obvious. But here you just never, I, I just never got that sense. I never got that that overwhelming sense of fear.
0: Michael and one of our correspondents, Steve Hendricks, were taken to an area that had recently been shelled by Russian-backed separatists.
2: This has been going on for quite some time. Since 2014, there's been shellings or shootings. It's kind of almost a daily occurrence, but its frequency has increased substantially since the tensions have been ratcheted up with the Russian presence on the borders. So this area we were in normally didn't suffer from any shelling, so it was kind of a new experience for people living in this area. So how have they been preparing for that? Well, uh, from what I saw, and I did a couple trips out to the Eastern Front, it varied on where you were. In this town, a lot of the people had left the town. The evidence of abandoned homes is plenty. I mean, there's a lot of homes that have been abandoned. Some of those homes have been taken over by the military. They're used as a barracks or a mess hall. You saw some sandbag fortifications, that kind of thing. They didn't want to show us too much because they didn't want us to divulge positions or logistics or anything like that. Uh, but in a, another town further south, there it was a network of trenches that were very reminiscent of World War I. Mm. Um They were fortified with wood on the sides. It was a really muddy, soft, muddy terrain. Be quiet. It's a big agricultural area where they grow wheat. And there it was more of a... Um, Fortifications in, in in something out of a you know the film nineteen seventeen I mean hmm. or all quiet on the Western Front. It was very strange to see it and experience walking around in there
0: and Michael, did you actually see any of this fighting up close?
2: Well, the closest that we got to actual fighting was when some shells were lobbed over at us during a press junket to the eastern frontier um in that border zone, the no man's Land, where we were at a tractor repair factory and we were there actually to see evidence of shelling they had shown us these craters where a ukrainian soldier had been hit and lost his arm that very morning and as we were looking at the evidence of this suddenly one of the ukrainian military officials that we were with kind of nervously said hey we need to get inside we need to get inside we're in view of the separatists and we don't want to be seen so we all hurried inside the the factory And there we remained for a few minutes, and I was making pictures of some of the soldiers in there. And then there was sort of this frantic call again, and it was all in Ukrainian. So I couldn't understand a word, but you can definitely understand the language of nervousness and, you know, we need to get out of here. And a couple of the other vehicles sped off, and the driver of our vehicle approached us. Denis was his name, and he approaches us and says, hey, we need to go. So we got in the vehicle and we sped away really fast across this. It looks almost looks like a tarmac at an airport, and that's where the craters were. When suddenly we just hear the shell explode about a hundred yards behind us, and it's really loud and surprising and shocking. And uh, there was a car in front of us that was driving pretty slowly because the roads are in terrible shape. They're full of potholes and dilapidated, and my driver's yelling at that driver (laughs) through the windshield to please go faster and I'm kind of doing likewise and they move over to the side and we managed to get around them and that was followed by about three or four more shells. I think there were about four total that they had sent into that zone where we just were. A few of the other journalists had gotten stuck in the tractor repair facility because they couldn't get out in time. And then they came out later when the shelling stopped and it took about a half an hour uh, for the shelling to stop. I think they sent over a total of about 20 shells or so.
0: Michael Robinson-Chavez is a photojournalist for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Ariel Plotnick and mixed by Sam Baer. It was edited by Maggie Penman. If you value the journalism you hear in this podcast, please consider a subscription to The Washington Post. Right now, when you subscribe, you'll get four weeks of digital access for free. And then you'll pay just $40 for your first year. Check it out at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. And thank you. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.